I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 116 again. We read the psalm this morning and focused in particular on verses 12 through 14. But there are more things we could say about it, and so this afternoon we will consider what Scripture teaches as it's summarized in Lord's Day 32, and we'll use Psalm 116 to give that a little bit of background. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, there, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said, am I alarmed? All mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the, to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's also read Lord's Day 32 together. Lord's Day 32 of the Catechism. Here we read as follows, Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone, through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit to be His image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for His benefits, and He may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like shall inherit the kingdom of God.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, one of the greatest dangers of Christian living is to separate doctrine from experience. We tend to see these two things as being opposed. Doctrine is what you profess. Experience is what you live. But that is not how theology works. Theology is speaking about God. And we can do that in a formal sense when you study and discuss doctrine, for example. But it can also be something intensely personal. Something experiential even. God is never someone that we describe and discuss from a distance in words of our own choosing. He has revealed Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has revealed Himself as our Savior. He reveals Himself as our Savior through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an ongoing process. Salvation is not limited to only the point when people come to faith. While we talk about salvation, we're not describing an event that happened a long time ago. We're not describing something separate from our day-to-day experience that is only to be taken out and admired at set times and places. No, we are describing an ongoing process with ongoing results in our lives. In fact, through faith, you can experience Christ's salvation every day that you live. That's also our approach this afternoon. Through faith, you can experience Christ's salvation every day that you live. And we'll see that you can experience gratitude for the benefits of salvation. You can experience assurance through the fruits of faith. And you can experience joy through winning your neighbors for Christ. The quickest way to a flat spiritual life is to think that it ends with redemption. And that has a lot to do with how you think about salvation in general. What do you think of when you hear the word salvation? What do you think of? What comes to mind? In our minds, it's often equated with justification. Justification is that God declares that all the claims of the law have been satisfied against us. All the claims that the law had against us have been satisfied. Or in the words of Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And when we think of salvation, that is often what we think about. We think of God declaring us to be forgiven, justified. But that is not the full extent of it. If you look at the Bible as a whole, it's clear that salvation is deliverance from everything that separates us from God, up to and including death itself. So salvation involves all parts of our relationship with God. It includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, something that encompasses our whole life. You could take a lifeboat rescue as an analogy. Imagine that you're on a ship that is going under in a storm. It's in the process of sinking. Massive waves are pounding against the sides and washing over the deck. The engine room is flooded. 
you have a short amount of time left, you're holding on to the railing, and then you see lights in the distance and a lifeboat comes to rescue you. And after coming up close and timing it right, they manage to get you on board. Now, at that point, you're saved. But in another sense, you're not at the shore yet. That boat still has to make its way back through the waves. The storm might even rage harder. Eventually, you'll make it to the shore, and then your rescue is complete. Now, all analogies are flawed, and probably you can find some holes in this one. But getting into the lifeboat is a little bit like justification. Making your way back to the shore is like sanctification, that process of getting back. And then your final arrival in the harbor could be compared to entering heaven, glorification. So at what point are you saved? Well, in one sense, you're already saved when you're taking off of that sinking ship. But you're not at the shore yet, are you? You're, you're justified. You're not yet sanctified. You're not glorified. So in that sense, salvation is an ongoing process in your life. And this idea of salvation as an ongoing process is reflected also in Psalm 116. Salvation is not just a one-time deliverance. Now, it might seem that way when you read verse 6, right? It seems to really have a strong before and after. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. But who are, um, who are the simple? Well, the simple are people that need to be kept out of trouble on a regular basis. All of us on some level have some, some elements of this simplicity in us. And look at verse 8. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So he cannot have kept his feet from stumbling only that one time. And his walk before the Lord is not condensed to only that one moment. Walking before the Lord is an ongoing process. And in that process, he continuously needs to be preserved from having his feet stumble. So the Lord continues to preserve him even as he lives out of this salvation. We find the same thought echoed in the New Testament in Jude 24, for example, where it refers to God as the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able to keep us from stumbling. And surely none of us would think that we only stumble once in our life. We need God to, to keep us to preserve us, to renew us, and finally, ultimately, to deliver us and bring us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So salvation in the broad sense is not restricted to just one point in time, for instance, when you first come to faith, or maybe when you first realize in a really intense way your need for God. Salvation is an ongoing thing, and it's important to get that right because sometimes we Think of salvation as a transaction. God saved us in the past. Christ died on the cross. God saved us in the past, and now we respond with good works. And then it becomes a transaction. He gives us salvation. We give him good works. And there are many people who go through life thinking that way. Maybe not consciously, but in the back of their mind, that is how they operate. But that assumes that we have something to call our own, something that we can give back to God. 
in all of this? And the catechism says, no, no. All of your renewal is a work of Christ. He cleansed us through his blood, yes, but that is not the full extent of his salvation. He renews us through his image, to be his image, through his Holy Spirit. He renews us to be his image. And that is a long-term goal. That is the ultimate goal of our life, to be renewed in his image in perfection. What is the image of God? Well, think back to what we confessed in Lord's Day 3. God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. And the catechism borrowed that idea straight from Ephesians 4 verse 24. The image of God is true righteousness and holiness. So to be righteous is to act in accordance with the law of God. To be holy is to be set apart for the service of God. So the image of God is not just something passive that every human being carries around within him. No, the image of God is something that you do. It is something that you live. And we lost that ability to bear the image of God through the fall into sin. By nature, we are not able to act in accordance with the law of God. Now, um, of course, many unbelievers still do things that overlap with the law of God. The canons of Dort... Chapter 3, 4, Article 4, call this the light of nature. It says, quote, To be sure, there is left in man after the fall some light of nature, whereby he retains some notions about God, about natural things, and about the difference between what is honorable and shameful, and shows some regard for virtue and outward order. But so far is he from arriving at the saving knowledge of God and true conversion through this light of nature that he does not even use it properly in natural and civil matters. That's what the Canons of Dort says. So the true image of God, as Scripture explains it, as the Catechism summarizes it, is no longer ours by nature. By nature we live for ourselves, and because we live for ourselves, we're not set apart for Him either. That was the other half of the image, the holiness. The Catechism calls that misery in Lord's Day 2. See, this is our big misery in life, our big failure. Our misery is that we failed in both of those areas, righteousness and holiness. Our misery is not just that by nature we are not right with God. Our misery is that we cannot act right, not in anything that we do. And so we are not able to be set apart for Him either, and there is nothing that you can do about it. And that helplessness is reflected in Psalm 116 as well. He had nowhere else to go, no one else to talk to, no one else to call on. But now God comes to us with salvation. And the first part of that is that he declares us to be righteous. That's justification. He says he will not hold our sins against us. They've all been cleansed from us through Jesus Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, remember? Christ has redeemed us by his blood. That already is an awesome thing. But having redeemed us by his blood, he also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. In other words, we can bear the image of God again. And as we begin bearing this image, we are able to live in true righteousness and holiness. Notice it doesn't say perfect righteousness and holiness, but true righteousness and holiness. 
We learn to love God's law. We learn to follow it. We learn to be devoted to him more and more. And as we see that more and more clearly, we learn to praise him more and more as well. Because we realize he is committed to us for the long run. He didn't just save us in the past and then leave us to work it out on our own and disapprove of us whenever we get it right. He didn't put us in the lifeboat and then make us find our own way back to shore. No, he's delivered us from this ultimate misery, from the culpable lack of righteousness and holiness in our lives. And now he's renewing his image in us. Those are the benefits that question and answer 84 is referring to. And it says, For that, with our whole life, we are to show ourselves thankful to God. Grateful. Now, maybe we are thankful or grateful to God, but are we grateful for the wrong reasons? For example, sometimes we talk about those who um, obey God are blessed. Right? The blessings of being part of God's covenant, the blessings of being obedient to Him. God blesses those who are obedient, and that's true. Most of the time, people who obey God are successful in life. Maybe there's even material blessings to come with that. But if life is going well, and if we receive these blessings, whether material or in other areas of our life, does that become the reason why we are grateful? What if they were all taken away from us? Would we still be grateful? Are we grateful because we always get our way? Or do we become ungrateful when we don't get what we want? It's uh, striking that impenitence is characterized by ingratitude. If you skip ahead to the next question and answer, the next question says, can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life. Now, that's worth noting. The word ungrateful and the word impenitent are put side by side here. They belong together. Impenitence, a, a lack of, a, a lack of um, feeling sorry for your sin, is combined with ungratitude here, a lack of gratitude. Those who are impenitent reject God's salvation by persisting in non-image-bearing acts, if you can put it that way. So they're not grateful for salvation. That's why they act in this way. And you might say, well, you know, you look at this list, I stay away from all of that stuff. But it's still possible to be ungrateful in our walk of life. Here's how it works. You sin against God and his law, and you feel sorry for what you did. You promise to do better, and you resolve not to do it again. But who's in the center? Well, you are. You're disgusted with, you are disgusted with your behavior, so you promise that you will do better. You have an idea of the sort of person that you want to become, and you are not there yet, so you resolve to do better. Where is Christ in that? You're forgetting that all of it is Christ's work, redemption, and renewal. If we try to replace his work of renewal with our own self-improvement projects, we are not going to be able to live out of gratitude. He has his own image that he's forming in us, and that image might differ substantially from our self-perception. Until you accept that, until you submit to his 
image-bearing, image-forming work in you, you're not going to be able to show gratitude in your life. The true gospel always produces gratitude. How can you not when you're in the lifeboat and you're headed for shore? Some of you have maybe followed the case of those Aussie surfers who um, were lost at sea in Indonesia for 36 hours. It's a, a long time to be floating around. And um, there's footage on the internet of these people in the water when the rescue boat approaches them. And how do they react when they see the boat coming? They cheer. They're delighted. Imagine now if, if they would enter the boat and then say, we're so grateful, we would like to show our gratitude by steering the boat ourselves. Would that make any sense at all? It wouldn't. Christ is renewing us by the Holy Spirit. He is working out His salvation in us. He's bringing forth the fruit of faith in our lives, and it's His fruit. And only when we fully grasp that, only then can we begin to experience true assurance. The second point that we pay attention to. This one's misunderstood sometimes. When the catechism refers to assurance, it's not quite the same thing as what we might experience as self-confidence. Some Christians can come across as very confident in the way they present themselves. And look, that's not necessarily wrong. Everybody's wired differently. But we should not make the mistake of thinking that self-confidence is the same thing as assurance of faith. Sometimes people can be self-confident because they've never encountered their own limitations. They've never encountered something that really shook them to the core of their being, really challenged their faith. And see, the psalmist did. He did encounter those limitations. In verse 3 of our reading, he says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. The snares that hold you back encompass me. No matter where he turned, he was hedged in. The pangs, the pains of Sheol, the grave laid hold on me. He felt it coming. He suffered distress and anguish. And then in verse 8, he mentions he was in tears. You've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears. So he was in tears. He was stumbling along. Couldn't work it out. Stumbling through his day. But that was the very reason why he called on the Lord. All his other confidence had been taken away from him. And he describes how the Lord delivered him. And then in verse 12, he says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And that's the same question we find back in the catechism. How? Are we to show gratitude to, to God? And uh, how are we to show ourselves thankful to God for His benefits, is the wording. And the psalmist says, how am I going to do this? What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? And this morning we saw that He will celebrate, He will call on the Lord, He will pay his vows. Ultimately, in verse 17, he says, I will, I will offer the, the sacrifice of 
thanksgiving. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And ultimately, that sacrifice is the result of a life that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And that is an ongoing process. That's why the sacrifice never ends. The Lord is with us in the long run. That's reflected in verse in Psalm 116 as well, that there's, there's a continuity to this. Deliverance is not just a one-time event. It has lasting implications for the future. It's not just justification, but sanctification. To walk before the Lord in the land of the living, like he says in verse 9, means that your life is continually before God. It's continually exposed to His light. The fruit of faith does not grow separately from that. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And that is meant to give us assurance. That's where the assurance comes from. Because every time that you see the fruit of faith in your lives, you're seeing God at work. You're seeing the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Every time you turn away from sin, every time that you bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you are experiencing the outworking of salvation. That is what it is. And that's reassuring. Now the question is, can you lose that sense of assurance? And the Canons of Dort suggests, suggests that, yes, you can. In chapter 5, article 5, it describes those who fall into serious sins. And it says, quote, by such gross sins, they greatly offend God, incur the guilt of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes, for a while, lose the sense of God's favor. So it's saying, look, it is, it is possible for you to lose a sense of God's favor, to lose a sense of assurance in your faith when you sin. And maybe if we are miserable in life, maybe it's because we have a persistent, unconfessed sin in our lives. Maybe there's a hidden sin that we're not willing to face. Maybe we've been harboring a sinful attitude toward God or our neighbor. Maybe we didn't even know consciously. And it took this sense of unease to bring it to the surface. We should not be surprised at the possibility that such a thing might exist in our lives. It can also happen that we're simply struggling with doubts of the flesh. The canons of Dort go on to refer to that in chapter 5, article 11. It says, Scripture, Scripture, meanwhile, testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various doubts of the flesh. It says, look, you can expect this. And placed under severe temptation, do not always feel this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. So if you say, I'm struggling, the, the writers of the canon say, yes, so did we. But they say, God, the Father of all comfort, will not let them be tempted beyond their strength but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, and by the Holy Spirit will again revive in them the certainty of perseverance. It's good for us to reflect on this. Often when we struggle with fear or anxiety, we immediately assume it must be a mental health issue. Maybe you feel depressed. Maybe you're feeling depressed this very afternoon. Maybe it comes back often and you hate this feeling and you want to get away from it. And everything becomes about managing the way that you feel. You get stressed when you feel it coming on. You're happy when it's kept away. And in your mind, God is only at work in your life when that feeling is in the background, when it's kept as far away as possible. 
And then when it creeps in anyway, then you wonder what's going on. But what if God is actually at work in your life in a different way than you thought? What if he's making you grow through all of this in ways that you cannot fully understand right now? See, sometimes we need to redefine what growth is. Look at Psalm 116 again. Do you think that he planned for this to happen? Psalm 116 describes a long spiral into darkness. The growth in his life was not that he managed that darkness, but that he learned to look at the Lord. And that took time. He had to learn to profess his faith in the midst of the darkness. And then at the end, he learned to praise God when he was out of it. Praise is part of the fruits of faith. See, he, he didn't focus only on the end result when he was praising God. His assurance didn't come from the sacrifices he brought at the end. He looks back and he's assured by what God has done. The sacrifices are his response. They, are, they assure him in the sense that they involve him. They, they make his thankfulness concrete. But the sacrifices are not the starting point. The starting point is salvation. The starting point is God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. The starting point is God's promise to him. And the same is true for us. Ultimately, our assurance lies in God's promises. It lies in the fulfillment of those promises through Christ and his work of redemption and renewal. Because we believe in his redemption, we believe in our ongoing renewal, and then the fruits of faith come out of that. Those are the secondary evidence. They're very important evidence. A life with no fruits of faith at all is not a Christian life. But they are not the primary evidence that God is at work in our lives. That comes from his promises. We've seen that through faith you can experience Christ's salvation every day that you live. We've seen that you can experience gratitude for the benefits of salvation. You can experience assurance through the fruits of faith. And let's now pay attention to how you can experience joy through winning your neighbors for Christ. See, we talked about the image of God earlier, the true righteousness and holiness. And what this world needs more than anything else is the image of God. Because this is what the world was created for, for us to, to bear that image, to live out the image of God, and to exercise dominion over all the earth as we did that. And, and the world has missed that image after the fall into sin, the, the world is groaning. Creation is groaning. And now the Lord restores that in us, and we can reflect that image again because Christ is renewing us by His Spirit. That's what the godly walk of life is about. The true righteousness, the true holiness becomes visible again. The image of God walks the earth again. And that means that we are called to live to a high standard Precisely because Christ has done everything, precisely because He is doing everything, precisely because He is restoring that image in us, we cannot say that obedience is too difficult. We cannot excuse ourselves. Sometimes Christians become discouraged in their fight against sin. They give up and they resign themselves to always having this sin in their lives. And sometimes other people support them. They, they excuse that sin as well. They say, well, this is just the way that He is. 
If you're a true believer, that is a denial of your faith. Yes, you may struggle with the flesh and the body of sin, but you are not under the dominion and the slavery of sin. So in the end, all those who persist in sin do so because they want to. Maybe they were taken captive by Satan, but it was a willing captivity. It is a complicit captivity. You believe you were bought with the blood of Christ, do you not? Then how can you separate that from His renewal? If you believe you were bought with the blood of Christ, how can you not believe that you were renewed by the Spirit of Christ? So what do you do when you fall into sin? Back to the reality of redemption. Back to the promise of renewal. Keep praying for renewal. And in that prayer, in the empowerment that comes through prayer, you continue to experience salvation. Even if you're on your knees confessing your sins to God, that is the fruit of faith right there. That is salvation working itself out in your life. And then every day of your life as a Christian is an adventure because every day is an encounter with the living God. Not a journey of self-improvement, but a true encounter with the living Christ who, having redeemed us by His blood, also renews us by His Spirit. Now sometimes you might become discouraged because that doctrine seems to be separated from your lived experience. And... And you look at what it says, winning your neighbors for Christ, and you think, I've, I've never seen the gospel transform anyone's life. Maybe not even outside the church, but inside. But the thing is, if you want to see it, you need to look for it. That requires you to spend time talking together about faith. There is all sorts of stuff happening in people's lives. The problem is we don't always talk about it. You know, the structure is there already. We have a great structure, car park, car park chats, after church, club, an extensive social network with other church members. There's, there's lots of opportunity to talk about these things, but if you spend all your time talking about superficial things, you're still not going to benefit. You will not see change in the lives of your fellow members. If you don't talk about these things with outsiders, you won't see any change there either. Then there can be no thankfulness there either and no winning people for Christ. So how do you get beyond the superficial? By being real with each other. And we can start with that within the church. So then ask each other what's been going on in your life and then answer not just with facts, but on a deeper level. For example, what's been going on in your life? Well, we're building an extension on the house and the Lord is teaching me that I am not a patient person. I thought my dad was not a patient person, and I always resented him for that. Now I see I'm not either. And I used to blame him when I was growing up, and I found the same thing in myself as well. So I've had to repent from that. And I'm going to talk to my dad. See, that's one way to answer the question. Or you can go and talk about the renovation and about the different colors of paint and all, all of that stuff, which also has its place, but... But that's not where, where you see the work of God, is it? Here's another one. What's been going on in your life? Well, it's hard to find good entertainment. We were watching a movie last night, and it had nudity and objectionable scenes in it, and we should have turned it off, but we didn't, and I'm really disappointed in myself. 
then see where the conversation goes from there. See, Psalm 116 is quite striking in the sense that it assumes we will all be talking about these things. The whole psalm is a sharing of what God has done with a big resolution at the end to, to talk about that with others, to make that part of the ongoing discussions that we have with others. Look, look at verse 14 and 18. It even repeats it twice to get the point across to us. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of His people. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of His people. He pays His vows to the Lord before all the people and and. Together they celebrate what God has done in his life. In the presence of all of his people means that you discuss God's deliverance with each other. And maybe we don't do that enough. Maybe, maybe we don't do it from the heart. Maybe we only talk in doctrine and close off our lived experience from other people. But you know, it's important for us to to do this, to, to speak about faith with each other on a deeper level because any time that our identity as church is found in something other than the gospel, we stop being a church. Do you realize that? Anytime our identity as church is found in something other than the gospel, we stop being a church and we become a club. A club of people who talk together about the things that have happened in their lives but not about their faith. Through faith, we can experience Christ's salvation every day that we live. And when we realize what that is and all of its splendor, then talking about it becomes something very natural and it becomes deeply moving and it is not put on. May we all experience gratitude for the benefits of salvation. May we all experience assurance through the fruits of faith. May we all experience joy through winning our neighbors for Christ. And may we never ever get tired of talking about these things. Amen.